following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We are in uh, Exodus chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Uh, so far we've seen, and we've got to study Exodus 16, how God has been fulfilling His promise to the Israelites by multiplying and expanding them, so they are becoming like the sand of the sea. Uh, we've also seen the bondage of oppression that has come upon them in Egypt because of that. Um, last week we saw the, the miraculous birth, and well, the birth and miraculous rescue really of Moses, uh, who, of course, we know will be the deliverer, uh, saved by adoption, saved by being uh, made part of uh, the very household that was trying to kill him. Um, so. So now we're ready to rescue people, right? We've got people in desperate need of help. We have to deliver. Let's do this. Let's do some rescuing, right? Let's get these people out of Egypt. Um, except that's actually not what happens next, right? Uh, let me read on Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11 verse 22. Uh, what happens next? Well, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away. And Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Well, then where is he? Have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Um, so apparently we're not going to see the Israelites delivered just yet. Right? Uh, and of course... Uh, we know that Moses actually ends up staying in Midian for about 40 more years. Right? Um, and so, as it turns out, uh, Moses ends up on a bit of a detour. This past summer, as we were back in the States, traveling around visiting churches and driving all over the very large country in America, uh, we hit a few detours here and there. And most of them involved, you know, like going around the bridge that was under construction. But uh, one day, Denise and I were traveling down I-25, 
superhighway, major, major road, interstate, uh, through the southern part of Colorado, and we did this massive detour. And uh, all, it was you know, two lane, well, four lane highway, completely shut down, and traffic was backed up to get off of the highway for about two miles back. So we were sitting there 20 minutes getting off the highway. And we're just following this line of cars and traffic that are crawling along. And we get down this road another mile off the interstate, and uh, everybody's turning left at a stoplight. So, of course, the stoplight is you know, stopping traffic every few minutes. We get around here, finally do the stoplight after about 20 minutes, head down this road that turns out to be a dead end road. Thousands, well, not thousands, but hundreds of cars were being directed down, and, and, and there was no signs, there was no like detour signs. And our detour looked kind of more like that, actually. And we, we, we ended up wandering around the city of Pueblo for an hour looking for a sign, a clue of where this detour was. We finally, thanks to Google Maps, finally found the road. Uh, it was a 10 mile detour, it took us well over an hour to, to travel this 10 miles. It really was a net big detour. And uh, I, I even, you can ask Denise how happy I was on the end of this hour. Uh, I almost lost my salvation. <laughs> God is good and he's forgiving. So, so sometimes life has these kind of epic detours, right? Sometimes. Uh, and certainly that's the case for Moses. Uh, and sometimes these detours are necessary. What I hope to do by the time we get to this passage is to, to see why it is, what it is that God wanted to do in Moses' life that required this kind of 40-year detour, especially when the people of Israel were so in urgent need of help at that moment. What was so important that God would lead Moses well out of the way on this second detour. So let's, uh, let's see if we can find out why. Um, Back up a little bit to the beginning of the story. Uh, uh, it starts off by saying that Moses has grown up. And we also know it doesn't say it in Exodus, but in other parts of Scripture it tells us. And I'm going to actually read uh, Stephen's version of the story. Stephen tells the story very well at the beginning of this sermon that ends with this filming. Now, I'm not quoting that because I'm hoping for the same result, to be clear. But I like Stephen's. Uh, the way he tells the story, he has in a few little commentary pieces that are here. He says in verse 22, Acts 7, 22, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And he was 40 years old, so he's like, gone through a good chunk of his life. He has definitely grown up now. It came into his heart to visit his brothers and children in Israel. Um, Stephen gives us some patterns that Exodus doesn't, namely that the time that, uh, that Moses spent in, in Egypt had been um, life-shaping for him. He had grown to be a man uh, known for his wisdom. In, in all the wisdom of Egypt, he was well-read, well-schooled in accustomed uh, ways, education, science of Egypt. And he was a man mighty in word and deed. So somehow... Moses had developed a reputation, uh, stature, if you will, that uh, he was he was not one of the Hebrew slaves. Right? He really was, in many respects, an Egyptian, somebody bearing Egyptian nobility, somebody who had grown up in the, in the home of, of, 
uh, Pharaoh. Uh, so he, he wasn't growing up, and another scientist uh, growing up in this was not just that he was wise and mature, mighty in words and deeds, but also that he, he had come to really know who he was. Uh, one of the tasks of growing up, so we're still working on this, but one of the tasks of growing up is knowing who you are. And uh, middle school kids are all out deeper so I can pick on them a little. Um, you know, middle school is a time when you figure out who you are. And I remember when I was at that age, you know, I tried out lots of things. One day I was a cowboy, the next day I was you know, an athlete, you know so well. I tried, you know, I tried all these different things. I mean, who am I? Right? And hopefully, uh, as you get older, the world starts telling you who you can and can't be. You feel peer pressure. But at some point, as you get into adulthood, uh, one of the marks that you've grown up is you're, you're willing to be who you are, right? And you're not, not influenced so much by peer pressure. You're able to kind of be the person you want, regardless of what other people think you should be. And certainly that's true of Moses. He, uh, he grew up as an Egyptian, but it says that um, twice, in fact, it, it says that he goes out to his people. And Moses is identifying himself clearly as as a child of Abraham, not a child of Pharaoh. And he wants to associate, identify himself with the people of Israel. This is his roots. This is who he is at 40 years of age. He's made some very clear and specific choices to count himself an Israelite. Uh, Hebrews also says that uh, he made conscious choice to reject the daughter, the ways of Egypt, and become identified with the people of God. So, that's a good sign of his maturing his growth. Um, finally, uh, not only does he have this wisdom, this, this uh, education of Egypt, not only does he know who he wants to be as a child, as a child of Abraham, but thirdly, uh, he, he's learning to be unselfish. Right? And this is kind of the, one of the even further marks, I think, of adulthood. Kids are pretty self-centered. We all know as adults, we can be pretty self-centered. But part of growing up is when you start realizing the needs of those around you. And God's given us a special gift to teach us this. It's called children. Because <laughs> what happens is their selfishness kind of overwhelms our selfishness. And we're like, yeah, you're so selfish. Or he puts into our path people in need. Right? He, he brings across our vision, uh, like in the parable of the Samaritan, people who need help. And we stop thinking so much about ourselves and we look to the needs of others. And, um, again, going back to Stephen, who uh, shares the story, that um, says that it was in his heart, his heart was moved to go see the burdens of his people. Um, so Moses does that. He goes out and he kind of gives the impression that he hadn't really done this much up to age 40. But at age 40, he started to wonder and be perplexed about the struggles of his own people. So he goes out to see for himself what life is like for them. So he's growing up. Um, so what happens? Well, it says that as he goes out, he sees one of them being wronged, and he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Pretty familiar story about what oh, not only does he see what's going on, but he's deeply troubled by it. 
And he goes on and he sees this uh, Egyptian slave driver, slave master, uh, beating one of the uh, Hebrew slaves, it says. And uh, Moses is visibly, uh, according to his being, he is struck with the injustice of this. This is not right. And he could easily say, well, we need to do something about this, right? Or we need to form a committee. Uh, I don't know what all they could have done, but what he does, he takes matters to his own hands right at that moment. And, and Stephen says um, that he takes vengeance. Uh, it's a good many word in Exodus, he's similar language, that he avenges the death. He, he brings justice to it, right? albeit perhaps not the most just means. Right? But he takes matters into his hands, and what does he do? It says he strikes the Egyptian. Now the question is, let's well, say Maybe an important question, maybe not, but, um, you know, did, did Moses mean to murder this guy? Because that's what happens, right? He hit him in the sand because he was not breathing anymore. Right? He did him in. Well, it's hard to know, and the Bible doesn't say what his intentions were, but, but let me, uh, sometimes our translations can be a bit misleading. Let, let me give you what it really says in the Hebrew. It says this. Um, <coughs> Uh, it says that Moses saw the Egyptian striking or beating his brother. What does he say? Striking or beating. So Moses looked this way and that, and he struck or beat the Egyptian. He uses the same exact word. And then he went in his body in the same. Uh, I don't know how far Moses meant this to go, but uh, vengeance is, is giving somebody what they deserve because of the wrong they have done. And at the very least, in Moses, we know that Moses was, was, was avenging this wrong by giving the same guy a dose of his own medicine. But apparently, I don't know if like Moses had gone to like ninja warrior school in Egypt or something, or if he was just like a really big guy, or if like adrenaline had taken over, and I don't know. But he made that all carried away. Because, uh, uh, and it could be that, you know, the Hebrews could just take. Beating's a lot better than the Egyptians. I don't know, but when, when Moses fished out to this guy, <laughs> didn't end so well for the Egyptian. Uh, he died. Uh, but it's important to see that uh, right or wrong in terms of Moses taking this in better of his own hands. His intentions was to bring justice into a very unjust situation. He saw something that needed, a, a wrong that needed to be right. And in his mind, this was how you do this. Um, he is wanting to relieve their suffering. And I think Moses went home kind of happy with himself. I don't think he was feeling terribly guilty or feeling bad. Kind of gives an impression. He goes home thinking, that was a good day. I am rescuing my people. I had just, you know, I had just made a wrong right. And I had just relieved that, that guy's suffering. And he's feeling pretty good about himself. And uh, nobody saw it, and uh, one less addition, no big deal. One down, I don't know how many to go, but here's my plan, right? So it says that he goes out the next day to try some more of this action. Right? Um, again, not, not supposing that there's anything wrong with what he's doing, or not thinking through the long term implications of what, uh, what his strategy is. Uh, for example, that sooner or later the dead guy's going to get found. And who's going to, and there's going to be an investigation. 
And who's going to get pinned with the murder? Well, slaves, right? The slaves see it. The slave master, whose fault is it? Well, slaves. They're going to see he was beaten. They're going to assume the Israelites had killed him. I don't think Moses thought that went through, right? Who's that day two? Right? Um, and the thing that doesn't quite go so well, does it? says at the beginning, Stephen telling the story in Acts 7, he says, And Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Right? And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me just as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Uh, Moses, uh, first of all, is naive in a number of levels. First of all, he's clearly naive uh, that, that the Israelites were not that great. He understood the injustice of an Egyptian against the master, against the slave. But he's really caught off guard by these two Israelites fighting. It's like you're supposed to be all big one happy family. Totally naive on Moses' part, right? And it's a sign that he doesn't really know these people. Right? He stands as if he's imagined what his people are. His people are sinners, right? His people are doctors. His people need justice themselves. And so he's kind of blown away by this. And he he uh, again seeks to intervene. He sees this injustice going on, even though it's between and he seeks to reconcile them. Uh, second thing, he was very naive about that these people of Israel, his people, would automatically see Moses as their God. Right? That they would embrace him as a leader, a redeemer, and rescuer, and judge. Clearly they don't. They said, who, who died and left you in charge? Now, uh, it may well be that because of uh, Moses' place in Pharaoh's household, that he may have been a prince. He may have been viewed as something of a somebody in Egypt. Uh, the Israelites did not see him. Who made you prince and judge over us? Go home, little Egypt boy. It's essentially what you said. Uh, and in the conversation, it comes out that his uh, his plan was not working so well because it was not a secret. People saw what was going on. And uh, there will be an investigation. People will ask questions. And these slaves are not going to cover up and hide what Moses did. Because they'll pay the price. They're going to protect themselves. They're going to point the finger at Moses. And Moses you know, starts thinking this through now. Realizing, and I should have, it looks much better, it looks much better on paper. Right? Uh, what was I thinking? Right? This is bad news. Pharaoh's going to find out. And when Pharaoh finds out, I am toast. And Pharaoh does find out. Pharaoh issues a death warrant against Moses. So Moses has two choices. One is to face justice. Uh, interesting for a guy who has a very high sense of justice, but for him that's not an option, apparently. Mm-hmm. The other option is what? Get out of Egypt. 
all you do is work and say it's all And so begins this detour that Moses finds himself on. The place of Midian. Midian is a long way from Egypt. Uh, it's actually not a place. The Midianites were a nomadic group of herders who ranged everywhere from uh, around the region around the Dead Sea all the way down into what's now Arabia. Um, we don't know exactly where uh, Moses found them. Uh, they were related to the Israelites. Uh, one, of, uh, one of Abraham's many children outside of Isaac uh, was, the, was the father of the Midianites. So they were related to a Semitic tribe like him. They would have spoken a similar language. Uh, bottom line is for Moses, uh, he needs to get to a faraway place where he can't be found in the and it seems like they could fit. So he goes there. He's sitting at a well in those days, especially in that climate, very dry. A well would have been a major crossroads where everybody came. So why is he sitting there? Meet people, make friends, find a job, you don't know. He's there, hang out at this well. Um, it says that now the, the priest of Midian has seven daughters. Um, I have four daughters. You have seven daughters, apparently no sons. Um, if you're a dad like this, you're, you're just, what this means is he's on the lookout for son-in-laws. That's what it means. He's thinking, this is what this guy's thinking. He may be a priest, he's looking for husbands for his daughters. That's what it means. Uh, the seven daughters come and they came to draw water at this well and pull the troughs of water of their flocks. But some shepherds came and drove them away. Sitting here watching this, and one of the cool things we see about Moses is that his desire to be a rescuer really is deeply ingrained in him. He is just not a guy who can sit by and watch people be bullied and beat up. And when he sees these seven kind of helpless girls who are no match for this group of men and shepherds, uh, he is he is indignant at what's going on. And just like with, the, with his own people, he couldn't sit by. He just could not sit by. Anymore. And he gets up, and again, you know, Mr. Ninja Warrior training kicks that out of us. Because I don't know how many of these shepherds were, but I mean, Moses does away with them. I mean, I don't know if he was just a big guy or what, but he was imposing enough that this whole group of shepherds were going to mess with him. Right? He chased them off. Um, but we see another side of Moses as well. Not only is he uh, one who wants to make things right, he also. I think generally he cares about people. There's something in him that does this not for his own glory, not to be a hero. He generally cares about people. We see that because after he's chased off the shepherds, he doesn't say, he doesn't stand there waiting for applause, saying, hey girls, you can like, thank me now, like, where's, like dinner would be good. How about dinner? No, what does he do? Well, he starts watering their sheep, and he serves them. The very opposite of what these other shepherds did, who took advantage of them, he instead serves them. It's kind of a heart. It's just a picture of who Moses is. Well, the story kind of ends this way, uh, with a bit of humor. Uh, it says they all they all went home. The goats got their sheep, their water. Life's good. They go home. Dad, um, Dad's like, wow, you guys were you guys were home pretty early today. What happened? He said, well, you know, the shepherd the was always chasing us off. Well, this guy showed up, he chased them off. And he, and he watered all of our sheep for 
because you're looking for a son-in-law. And it's like, where is he? You mean you left the boy at the wall? What's wrong with you girls? What are you thinking? Bring this guy home. Somebody's going to take care of you. He's going to go to the bank with you. You leave him standing by the well. I taught you. I taught you. So that's quickly the remedy. And Moses finds a home. says that uh, he was content to dwell in the land. And Rahul gave Moses his daughters of Jordan. He's happy to content. In some sense, he's found a place to be. He's found a home. A place he can. A home, a family that's well. But the story ends there, and, and if, if we're tracking from chapter 1, okay, we're on a detour, and all of a sudden this detour is kind of looking more like a dead end, right? Here's Moses a long way from anywhere where he can do anything to help the Israelites. Okay, what we're going to do is deliver, who's now far, far away. He's not delivering, he's delivering the girls, okay, Moses, but what about Israel? Well, it's clear and it's interesting that God is not mentioned at all in this, in this passage, but he's implying, uh, and the question is there, why would God allow this detour? Why was this necessary? Why, why didn't God you know, put Moses to work delivering? Clearly Moses has a heart for it. Right? Clearly he's wired for it. Clearly uh, he has a passion and a vision for it. It's like, we're good to go. Let's just start, start the show. Right? Start rocking on Pharaoh. Let's, let's do this. But um, it's clear that Moses is not ready yet. There's some things in his life that have to be dealt with. If it is necessary that he take this detour, before he can do the work of rescuing his people, God must do a word in Moses' life. And the reason is for Moses to say, I don't have time for this, but God has time for it. So what was the purpose of this rerouting of Moses' life, away from what seemed to be a clear mission that was right before him? Well, the clue, uh, there's some clues in the passage, and uh, let me walk through this real quickly. The, the, the best clue, the most significant one, comes at the very end of the story with the naming of Moses' son. And you know, we may think that you know, it's kind of cute that their names all have meaning and it is kind of cute at nifty. Uh, but it's more than that. It's the closing line of the story. This is the story before. It really, uh, the naming of the child becomes the punchline uh, that we're to reflect on and ponder and ask questions about. So what is the, what is the, what is the name? It says, verse 20, Moses was content to go and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And Moses called his name Gershom. Where he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Okay, I'm going to name my child. I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. So that's what his name And that's not what his literal name means, but it's, it's close, right? And, and, and Moses gives it the meaning, clear. I named my kid this because this is how I feel. This is the place I am right now, just a foreigner in a foreign land. Right? And there's a meaning for that. It's the punchline of the story. It's supposed to make us think. Part of what this detour is about is that Moses needs to experience life as a foreigner. Right? He needs, it's important for him to exist as a sojourner, as an exile, uh, as like, like many, many of us in this room, as an expatriate. 
somebody who's living as an alien outside of their home. Moses needed to come to a place where he did not belong, where he was an outsider, away from everything that was familiar to him. Well, why? Why? Why was that important? Why was that the goal of this detour? Well, some more clues. Let's back up a little bit. second set of clues uh, has to do with uh, how people see Moses. Now, we saw that, that Moses wants to identify himself right as a child of Abraham. Right? He calls them his people. Right? He goes out and he tries to rescue his people. Right? He, wants, he wants in every way to be identified as a child of Abraham. But is that how other people see him? Uh, when he goes to the Israelites, how do they see him? Well, they see him as an Egyptian. Who made you prince and ruler over us, you little Egyptian boy? They see him as an Egyptian. There's something to them that we don't know that they knew or didn't know who he was. It didn't matter. To them, he was way too Egyptian. Um, then you know, he goes to Midian, when the daughters of Rahab go up and see him at the well. Who do they tell their father rescued them? A fellow Semite? A cousin? Or an Egyptian? An Egyptian. So this Egyptian guy sees. He's actually blood related to them. They don't see him as a cousin. They see him as an Egyptian. One other clue that uh, will help us put this together. Uh, Moses tells the story this way. When Moses was out to help his, his, his country and his people, he, he calls them Hebrews. Now, that may make sense to us because in, in modern times we call Jewish people Hebrews. Um, where did the name come from? Well, a Hebrew was not actually an Israelite. A Hebrew uh, was, a, was what the, the Egyptians called all the Semitic tribes. So they would have called, for example, the Midianites, Hebrews, the Moabites, Hebrews. Right? They were all Hebrews. And it was very derogatory. The Egyptians didn't use that name as, a, as, a, as an honor. It was very But, but what is, what, when Moses is accounting the story as himself as a 40-year-old, what does he call them? He calls them that the, Egypt was, was, the Egyptian was beating who? The Hebrew slave. Right? Even in the way Moses perceived his own people, he was seeing them through the eyes of an Egyptian, not as one of them. He was in every way, aside from what he wanted to be, he, he, was, he was Egyptian. He'd grown up in Egypt. He'd been trained by Egypt. He'd grown up in an Egyptian home. Um, he is not in this world internally. He is what And his thinking and his life and his mannerisms, his understanding of the world, his education, he is Egyptian. And I think the point of the story is simply this that. Moses needed this detour. He needed to be taken out to a place where he was a foreigner, where he was far away from Egypt. Uh, because there was just too much of Egypt in him and too much of the flesh operating in Moses' life. God could not use him until Moses learned some important lessons. And until some of that Egyptian thought and worldview and culture was stripped away from his life. And the only way to do that was to get him out of Egypt so God could get the Egypt out of him. 
was also that Moses had acted very much in the wisdom of Egypt and the passion of the flesh. I don't think this plan to kill Egyptian slave drivers came from God. Nowhere in this passage is God mentioned as leading or instructing Moses. This is Moses' idea. This is Moses' plan. This is Moses acting in his own flesh. Not by the leading and empowering of the God. So, the purpose of this detour is that uh, God needs to teach Moses how to live and be led by him, live by his power and life in the flesh. And it's not to say that God, God did not value or did God not have reasons for him being in, in Egypt all those years. Uh, it's not discounting the wisdom and the, the mighty hand he becoming in words and deeds. God wanted to use that as well. But he needed to bring that under his own lordship. He needed to channel that so that Moses' gifts were now directed by God, not by his own thinking. I'm so thankful for our worship bands this morning. It's just great to worship with these amazing musicians. Right? Now their skills came not necessarily through spiritual things. They come through the, the world. Right? We all have talents and abilities and education and resources that come from growing up in this world. But if we use those things alone, it will fail. We need to fill those things with the power of God so they can be effective. So we need, in our life, just like Moses, I think we need to make time to be tours. Uh, and this is hard for us. Uh, we tend to be you know, driven, focused, mission-centered, right? And certainly our churches and supporters want us to be this way. Like, they don't you go over here and just be lost, right? And end those two tours, right? They want to be our focus and mission. That's good. But here's the thing. Sometimes we need to make intentional, purposeful detours away from our work and our mission. Uh, because we need the same influence in our life. We need, like most of them, become foreigners who are away from uh, our culture and the worldview, the ideas of this age, which, have, which are imprinting their ideas on us. Um, and we cannot escape the influence of, of this world. And here's why. Because it is in our very nature to follow the world. And our sin nature, our holiness, our flesh, likes the world. It's home to us. It's where we feel comfortable. It's like Moses felt comfortable in Egypt. We need to get away from all that as we come to a place where we are foreigners. Right? We're in a place where we don't feel comfortable. And it doesn't matter, you know, how sheltered of a home you grew up in. You may say, well, I grew up as a TCK, you know, I don't even know what culture I belong to. It doesn't matter. The world has shaped you. The world has shaped your thinking. The world has set your values and priorities. And continues to do so. Right? It continues to do so. And we can't help it because uh, the influence comes not only from outside of us, but inside of us. You can shelter your children from the world uh, by isolating them, but you can't shelter them from themselves. You can't shelter them from their own thinking, which is just as worldly and just as subtle as we know. So we need to become foreigners in the world, and how do we do that? Um, 
And why is it important, first of all? Let me say this. Here, here's the deal. Uh, a lot of us are in ministry. A lot of us, I hope, want to serve God. Um, most of us you know, here because we, we understand the great commission. We have this sense of vision and calling on our life. But here's the reality. You can, you can serve God. You can do all kinds of stuff for God. Totally in your own wisdom and in your own flesh. And I know this from experience. Because I've, I've done this a lot. I've done ministry. I've been a pastor. I've served God. Uh, so, so focused on the mission. I had no time to let God strip away from me in my own flesh. It is totally possible to serve God full time, full on, fully in the flesh. And the reality is that when we do that, um, we will not be effective. We will not be effective. We will fail just as Moses did. So how do we do this? Uh, well, I think it's um, a couple of things. We need to take two important detours. Let me close with these two detours that we need to be intentionally making constantly in our life. The first one is the detour to God's Word. Right? We need to be spending sufficient time in the foreign world of God's Word so that it can transform us. Now, I'm pretty confident, as I hope, that all of you have quiet times, right? And uh, certainly that's a great start. If you don't have any time, you know, where you're reading the Bible and prayer, okay, please start, because that's step number one. But I need more than just that. And, you know, I've, I've been reading the Bible and had a faithful quiet time since I was 14 years old. And, but for a lot of those years, it was checking off a checklist box, right? Read the Bible, check, do that. Have you any what you read? No, and that doesn't really matter. I just did it. It doesn't matter. I fulfilled my little duty. Did you pray? Yeah, check that out. Got the list. That's not what I'm talking about. And I'm, not, I'm not saying you have to read through the Bible in a year so in the end you can say, read through the whole Bible. What I'm talking about is that we saturate our life with God's Word. So that it is transformed. Paul writes in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed, don't be squeezed into the culture of thinking of this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That requires time and effort in God's Word. And not just reading through a chapter, but letting God's Word sink into your life to the extent that it changes your thinking. It changes how you see the world and your outlook on life. Most of all, it shapes and influences our understanding of who God is and what He wants to do in us and through us. Uh, this takes time. Uh, you cannot do it in five minutes or ten minutes. Uh, it takes intentional detours. And that can come in various ways, right? It can mean a daily time with God where you're detouring, you're setting aside space. God's word to impact you. Right? And it also means you know, listening to good Christ-centered sermons and reading Christ-centered books and biographies and understanding the message and letting it shape you. Uh, 
Uh, and this is not comfortable easy. It is foreign soil. This foreign soil. I just got done teaching a lot of guys free. We got teaching them, and I was just reminded of how much this is foreign soil to them. Uh, I talk in English, Lahu, uh, judgment translated into Lahu. I might as well just have been teaching them in Greek. Because most of them were just in a fog, right, Joshua? And I know Joshua's going to translate, it wasn't his fault. But most of them were like, we just don't know this, right? And it's not, because it's not natural for it to us, right? Maybe you feel the same thing, you read the Bible and you go, God, I just don't get it. I don't understand. Don't, don't, don't give up. Spend sufficient time until it begins to dawn on you, until it becomes home for you instead of foreign soil. It takes time. So to do that, you need to set a goal. How much time for you do you need to be spending in God's Word? Right? If you're spending zero, start with ten minutes, right? If you're spending if you're spending ten minutes, what's a good upgrade for you? And not just daily, but uh, set a goal for extended times away from the Word. Some spiritual retreat, sometimes you get away and spend a whole day, a whole day just reading your Bible and then God is Okay, so right now, you can pencil your, your phone in your head somewhere. You're thinking, okay, what is my goal time? How much time do you think you need to detour on to really sufficiently fill your life with scripture? Secondly, you need to set a plan. Don't just go and not have a plan. Okay, find some ways that you can interact with God's word that's meaningful, that's life impacting. Because okay. if you're a current reading plan, if you didn't, but you don't have the idea what you're at, you need to change your strategy. Right? Figure out another way so that you can understand what you're reading. Get help. Thirdly, when are you going to do this? I said, I'll let you play with your phone right now. Take that. Mark it on your calendar, right? Time. Set a specific time. You say, yeah, that's really good. I need to do that. I'm going to sometime, sometime, I'm going to do that. You'll never do that. Right? Come here. And then, you know, if you're really great, you come to your, tell your wife or your husband or your friend next to you, okay, this is my time. I'm going to do this, this time at this time. Right? Make them pull to a calendar. Right? Do you need that detour? Amen? Okay, so, so make plans for it. Second detour, and make this one a little shorter, is the detour to the cross. Here's the, here's the, the ultimate reality. Even reading the Bible right, will fail for most of us because even that we can do in the flesh. And here's the thing the flesh cannot conquer the flesh. The problem is the flesh. And if you're going to do your Bible reading thing, you're going to fill your life with your word based on your ability and your determination and your great discipline. You must appropriate a different kind of power. And Paul tells us how to do this in Romans 8. He says, For God has done what the law of reading by the flesh can have to do. If God has done for you what you can't do for yourself, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So what it means we need to turn the cross daily where we come before the cross and we say, God, I can't do this. I can't even read my Bible. I can't pray. I can't worship you on my own. I can't do this. Right? 
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.